0: On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you, and they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash roadie. That's betterhelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. at 2213, Jordan Road. I a full you gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire on, that, on the They clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one-up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and on today's podcast, I am proud to be joined by uh, paramedic Kevin. Kevin spent 30 years in EMS. He's worked as an EMT, as a paramedic, and also served his community as a deputy volunteer chief with an EMS service. So Kevin, it's great to have you on the podcast. I know you've got a great story for us today, so I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate this. So uh I've been an EMT and a and a paramedic now since uh 1992. Originally started volunteering in my my hometown in uh in Westchester County. Uh after getting my EMT, uh I worked for a few agencies around Westchester and then uh landed myself down in the Bronx working for Our Lady Mercy Medical Center. I was there for about uh 12 or 13 years uh full-time there and uh I decided to go down to Manhattan. Uh, I worked for St. Clair's Hospital uh, down on 52nd Street. I was there per diem probably for about five or six years, all around the time of uh, 9-11. Right at the time that I started down there, uh, the movie Bringing Out the Dead came out. Joe Connolly, the uh, the author of that, was one of our paramedics there. Uh, so it's really based on uh, on Hell's Kitchen down there where we covered. What brought me to, to come on here with you um, was a call that I did in uh two thousand and one. Uh it wound up being in December of two thousand and one. Obviously that that's after uh the terrorist attacks there. I had just come into work. I was working at four to twelve. I think I had just come off working a day tour in the Bronx because all of us at EMS never work in uh a single job. Uh we're all bouncing around. Uh I got in probably shortly after after four. Uh, I was assigned to uh one of the senior guys down there and uh, he asked me if I wanted to drive or tech uh cuz when we're working in the city the the driver you you pick and choose who's going to do what for the entire tour either you you're going to be in the passenger seat and you're going to be treating in in the back and doing the reports or you're going to be driving and and doing all the carrying the senior guy decided uh to let me uh let me choose i i was exhausted he's the senior guy he knows where he's going i i said i'll I'll take the passenger seat uh, he asked me if I needed to do anything. I was like, "Yeah, I just gotta. I gotta get a cup of coffee. I need something to eat, and I gotta go to the bank in no particular order." So he drives me down the street. We go to the bank, and as I'm in the bank, I hear the radio chirping. You know, I didn't didn't hear like sound like anything unusual. Then it started breaking up, and you heard the high pitched voice of somebody. You know, something's up, and all I could hear was bus, some scratchiness, and an accident. So I go walking out and my partner, Steve, looks at me and goes, we got to go to that. That's right up the street. I'm like, all right, no problem. I jump in the truck, we go. And as we're listening, it, it sounds like a, it was a bus accident and a van. And, you know, in, in the city, the this, this slang term for an ambulance is a bus. So we hear bus and I know the voice is one of, one of our other coworkers on one of our ALS units. So now Steve's flying to the job. We get there. And all we see is a, a city bus parked in the middle of Herald Square, a white van slammed into the back of it. There's people and bodies everywhere across the street. And I don't want to sound dramatic with that, but it really was. There, there, was, there was legitimately, I mean, this is Christmas time in Manhattan. Um, there's people everywhere and just, it was chaos. But we're thinking that our coworkers are involved. We hear bus, that's what we're thinking. So we're running around. We're trying to find them. We're trying to raise them on the radio. They finally come up on the air and they're like, oh yeah, we're, we're at the hospital. We just heard the, we heard a bad call come over the scanner. We're like, ah, all right. So almost a sigh of relief, but now we know we got to go to work. So Steve opens up the side door, hands me a, a half of the packet of the triage tags. And he goes, you go that way. I'll go this way. And we'll meet back here in five minutes.
0: Kevin, let me stop you for a second. For anybody that's listening that doesn't understand what's about to happen, can you explain that process a
1: little bit? So now that we know that we have a bunch of patients around these uh, triage tags that uh, that I just mentioned, these are tags that have uh, different colors on there and uh, patient information. So we can try and get to uh, enough uh, a lot of people at at one time and try to sort them out. Uh, and assign them a priority based on how they're presenting with their injuries, um, or a medical condition They could be used in a medical, uh, a mass medical emergency or a, uh, traumatic, uh, incident like this one is. And, um, so there's, uh, different colors on the tags. There's a, a green, which means they're walking wounded. They may have minor injuries, uh, yellow, which is, um, they're a little more serious. They, they have some injuries. Red is life-threatening, and then black would be dead, uh, where we can't do any uh, anything for them. And in most cases, in, in a mass casualty uh, incident, it, it sounds kind of horrible. We have to do the most we can uh, for the most amount of people. Um, so being a single unit, we may declare somebody dead, that if we had more units there, we could have Assigned resources to to um, to try and resuscitate them. And so that brings me back in, in, into this. Um, I've never, up to this point, I've done it in training only. I've never had to assign triage uh, colors to anybody in a, in a real uh, a real incident. So um, as I'm as I'm sorting through the the crowd, you know, th- the cops aren't even there yet. That's how quick we got there. My uh, my partner Steve was was on one side. He's trying to call for more units. Uh, I'm on the other side, and I I come across this one kid. He's uh, laying face down in the in the street, and he he looked like he was curled up in a ball. And I tried talking to him. I, I move him a little bit, and then I just saw that the the back of his neck was exposed. His uh, whole cervical spine was uh, was coming out immediately I assigned him the the first tag that I ever dropped on somebody wound up being a, a unfortunately a black tag. um and then as we we sort through, we get we get back to each other. Um Steve had two uh, two black tags as well. I had a few of the the red tags that were very uh, very serious patients and the just the amount of people that were there around us. and now units are starting to show up because it 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 is Manhattan. So uh, people can get there. Rel- a lot of resources can get there relatively quickly. The New York City emergency Sur- uh, New York City Police Emergency Services Unit uh, showed up with two of their ESU trucks right away with four guys, and their their minimum level of training is uh, is BLS EMTs, which is great. So we can start handing patients to to them to start triaging and, and retriaging, I should say, and uh, and start working on them. Uh, finally the FdNY uh, EMS conditions car shows up which is their field supervisor for the battalion in, the, in that area they take over the the command and now Steve and I can start getting back into um, patient care um, they assigned us one of the red tag patients we had uh, we we got uh, we had originally triaged uh, put him in the back of the ambulance and now we're we're trying to cut across town to get to, over to Bellevue uh, Bellevue Hospital being the closest trauma center at at the time there, and I just remember uh, this gentleman talking to me. Um, he was already immobilized by ESU and the and the, uh, and the FDNY engine companies that were there, and I remember this guy talking to me. Uh, it was an elderly gentleman in a business suit. He had he had some bags in in his possession there. And he he told me that he had just gotten off work. He's finally getting a chance uh, after the, even though it's after the holidays, to get over to New Jersey to go see his grandkids for the uh, for the holidays. And as I'm talking to him, I'm trying to uh, assess him. I'm taking his shirt off. I'm palpating. I'm pressing on his chest, listening to his lungs. Uh, all the time, he's really not complaining of much. He's just, you know, he was happy to be going to to go see his grandkids. And I looked down at his abdomen and I pressed on it, and his stomach was distended. It was all discolored, which is indicative of uh, of some major trauma to to his abdomen. And then I go down to um, to palpate his his pelvis, and I'm on either side of his pelvis, and I go to to press, and then my hands actually came together uh, because his pelvis was just completely shattered. I I cut off the rest of his clothing and found multiple fractures of all his lower extremities and the the guy's still talking to me. And then all of a sudden my partner, Steve yells out an expletive and has to lock the brakes up on the, on the ambulance. I go flying up into the front of the, the front of the truck. Somebody cut him off and then he hit the gas again. And then I go flying back to the, uh, to the back of the truck again. And my, uh, my examination glove got ripped off my hand somehow. And I'm looking, I'm like, what the heck happened here? And it turns out that, uh, he had an exposed, uh, fracture and, uh, the bone fragment actually ripped the glove off my hand. Luckily it didn't cut my hand though. Uh, I, I was surprised at that. So I, I got another one on, I finished doing the, the assessment. We get him to the hospital uh, long story longer, you know. He he passed away in the hospital, um, but Steve and I felt that we still had more that we had to do for that call. So we, as soon as we cleared from from the hospital, we asked permission to respond back to the scene, and they allowed us to. We did. They had already removed uh, all but uh, four of the the black tags that that were left on the scene. Uh, they were able to retriage some people and remove them. Uh, all in all the, the end of the day, uh, six people had, uh, lost their lives in this accident. Um, and I wound up transporting one of the, uh, one of the dead to Bellevue to the morgue there. Cause we were still doing, tra- uh, EMS was still doing transports of public view, uh, bodies at that time. I, I believe their protocols have changed. I'm not sure. Um, and, I remember going into Bellevue, into their morgue area, and I ran into a friend of mine that I didn't realize was working for the medical examiner's office. And he could just see in in my face that I was just, I I was shot. I was out of it. I, I didn't know which way was up. Uh, and he walked me af- after he, he checked us in with, with our, with our body and we, we moved them over. He walked me into the area where the, uh, the detectives were, were still trying to identify the bodies from, and the body parts from, uh, the trade center attacks. And he's like, you know, you think you have a bad, you know, he, he, uh, this guy that I was talking to was old school EMS and then got into the ME's office. So. You know, rub some dirt on a kid, get back in there, type, uh, type guy. He's like, "Come with me." Uh, Shows me all this stuff, and you know, you think you have it bad from what you just did. Look at what these people are doing. You know, you can get back out there and do it. Yeah. So I I can't even tell you what I did the rest of the rest of that shift. That was the first call of the shift. I don't. To this day, I have no idea what I did. I know after I left, I had contacted uh, a couple of my. Friends from EMS up in Westchester, they were all going out. So what do we do when, when we want to debrief? We go hit the bar. So that's that's what I did. Um, and for a while there, that that was my crutch. I just I kept going back to the bar, and I was reliving that call at night, during the day, just trying to figure out what happened. Why? What could I have done? What what should we have done? Could we have done anything better for the? For the people that were there when we were triaging them, uh, when we were treating them, if if other units had gotten there quicker, if we had gotten there quicker, and each night I would leave, whether I was working in the Bronx or or Manhattan, uh, I would not go home. I would go straight straight to the bar again, um, you know, I and just try and find the answers, and uh, I never found the answer in the bottom of any of the the bottles I was in, but I kept looking. Cause I swore they were there and it, it, I just turned into an angry, angry, mean mess of a person, a mess of an EMT. It was, it was a very horrible thing. Um, my, my partners got right to the edge there of cutting me off, uh, friendship wise. I, I was very lucky. I, I had very strong partners that, that stuck with me. My family, uh, my, my father uh, at the time was uh, just about to retire from uh, being a police officer in, in, in Westchester. My brother's a, a police officer for uh, a New York City agency. My sister's a nurse. So they, they've they been around that stuff, and I would avoid them because I knew that they could read what was going on with me, and I couldn't talk to them. But they, they kept fighting, fighting for me, fighting with me, and uh, I was able to get to get through that. And it was, it was very, very difficult to, to try to turn away from that call and just say, you know what? I did everything I could. It took me years a- after that to say, you know what? For what I had at the time, I was able to do everything. Kevin, let me ask you, let
0: me ask you something. Yeah. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no. what was it about that call in particular? Or was it just the, the, the size of it, the massness of the, of the injuries or, you know, what was it? What do you think it was? I,
1: I honestly think that being that it was, uh, it was post nine eleven, I, I was working for St. Clair's. I, I was actually assigned to work on nine eleven. I took off. I was able to get my, my partner's girlfriend actually covered the tour for me so I can go away. So, they actually got trapped in the uh, in the towers. The person that was working for me and and my partner. So I I think that after that that one call in Herald Square, that wound up being my breaking point from all of the stuff prior to that. That cumulative PTSD that they talk about. I believe that that's real. I believe that. What I what I was experiencing then was was that before it was it was called that before anybody was really researching that in at least at the emergency medical services level what we're what we all go through so um, and, and I've said it before and I, I I don't mean this to be disrespectful to to anybody that was a a, a responder to to nine eleven or comparing either one of the calls. But that was my 9/11. That call. That was my my burden. My you know, all the weight was on my shoulders, and and I took it, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I I really think that that's what um what brought that there, um brought me to that to that point. I think that makes a lot of
0: sense. You know, it sounds like you had probably some guilt going going past 9 too, because you weren't there because you were off and something you know terrible happened to the people that, that supported you. So now you're carrying around this guilt and you get to this, this massive call and just like that, you hit that breaking point. So it all seems to make sense.
1: Yeah. Um, it was, it was surreal, you know, even, uh, when I would attempt to, while I was working, uh, down there, I, would, I tried to go down to the pile, down to the, the area uh, surrounding it. And every time I would get down there, we would get a call in a, in a different area. So I, even to this day, I've never been there. I haven't been back there. I, I, haven't, I, I haven't been to Herald Square. I haven't driven through it, walked through it. I haven't, and I, nor have I been to the site of the, uh, of the Trade Center. Um, I've been invited to the museum. Uh, I've been invited to the memorial. Uh, I had tickets for the opening and I never, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I still can't. And I, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it took
0: me about 20 years to
1: get back there. Yeah. Um, but since then I, I've, I've left working, um, working in the city. I, I still work in EMS. I'm, I'm working EMS full-time in Westchester. A couple of years ago, uh, I got my paramedic. Um, so I've been doing that. Uh, I am a. Certified uh, instructor coordinator. I teach EMT programs, and uh, the story that uh, that I just shared with you, I actually uh, I share that with all of my students, um, and I I try to get a couple of my instructors that work with me uh, on my my instructional team to share some of their stories with the with the students because they're even when people are coming into the industry, they don't necessarily know the the other aspect of the of the job all the stuff that we carry around when we when we do clock out when you do walk out of your uh your volunteer house everything else that we're still carrying with us and it's things like this that that you're doing that are putting a spotlight on that and definitely giving back into into this community to to give people like me the opportunity to to speak out and let other providers know that we're all in it together. We've all been there. We've all done this stuff. You're not alone. And you putting a platform out like this is an unbelievable resource for these, for all of us that, that are still working and people who, who are not, and the general public who have no idea what we do. So I, I have to thank you for that.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And it's it's interesting that you're you're an instructor coordinator. As you know, I work in higher education now and I have a program director who teaches our paramedic program. She's a phenomenal woman. Her name is Linda. And she makes her her and it has nothing to do with me. I didn't encourage this at all, but she makes her her new EMT classes and her paramedic class listen to episodes of the podcast. And certain episodes are relevant to what she's teaching. But what I, I think is really rewarding for me is that some of those students have been struggling a little bit and they use this podcast to recognize that they're not the only ones struggling. So what you just said really uh, resonates with me. And I appreciate those, those words. And it's really is what I'm trying to do is create that community. So thank you for recognizing it and thank you for being a listener and, and thank you really for, for sharing your story. Um, tell me a little bit more. Tell me, uh, tell me about some of the things that you do that, that kind of gets you away from EMS that gets you in a better mindset.
1: Well, um, I am a, uh, I am a a, a uh, you, you heard when we were trying to set up for this. Uh, my dog's running around. Uh, I'm a dog dad. I'm also the uh, the father of a a beautiful eight year old girl. Um, I'm happily married. My my wife Eileen tolerates me. Gives me uh, some quiet time to uh, to participate in this, which uh, which I'm very lucky for but that that's my my outlet my my step away from everything is is just my family at this point. um i've come a long way from from that emt that i was in in uh in 2001 uh to everything i'm doing now. like i was saying before with my my partners and my family supporting me during that that time frame you know i'm not i'm not another statistic Um, with the uh, the rash of suicides that we've been seeing in our in our industry especially uh, post COVID uh, during COVID with the the strong support staff that I have uh, outside of the job is what I credit me still being here and, and and having this beautiful family that I have and able to continue doing what I'm doing. Because I still absolutely love it.
0: I think that's incredibly important is having that support system at home. so I'm, I'm certainly glad that you have that. I'm glad that you talked about that. Um, while we while we wrap this up, anything else that you want to share?
1: No, I think uh, I, I, I think that's it. I just uh, I, I, I hope that that every member of service, regardless of uh, what uniform you wear, whether it be scrubs or or a badge, just know that there's there's resources out there for you. there's there's always an alternative. Uh, you know, don't, uh, you know, you know, if you find yourself in a bottle, you can get yourself out of that. There's people that can help you. Don't try and, and do anything that, uh, that's permanent. And, and know that we, we can all work together to get through anything that we need to.
0: Very well said, brother. I appreciate you being on the podcast. I really appreciate you sharing this story. Um, I know it's a very personal one and, uh, I'm really glad that you found your way out of that bottle, that you have a wonderful life now and that you're you're doing a great job and, and giving back as an instructor. Um, so that's, that's all good stuff in my book. You are welcome back on the podcast anytime. Uh, dig deep, find me some stories and uh, we'll have you back on. And uh, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear from you again. So thanks for being on the show, Kevin.
1: Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you enjoy. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. Show notes are written by Jennifer Roig. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this show, please visit storiesfromtheroadpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.